Chapter 14 of The Year When Stardust Fell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Todd. Chapter 14 Mobilization. The two nomads stood glaring and snarling before the drawn revolvers that pointed at them from the doorways of the room. For an instant it looked as if they were going to draw their own weapons and make a pitch battle of it right there in the council chamber. Then their glances fell on their comrade, writhing in pain on the floor. They raised their hands in slow surrender. If we're not back by sundown, you'll be wiped out. When will the attack begin if you do go back? asked Hilliard bitterly. Two hours before sundown? We thank you for the information about your timetable, at least. We have three hours to prepare a defense of the town. He nodded to the policemen. Take them away. Put them in cells and tie them up until this is over. When they had been removed, he turned back to the group. I've had nightmares, he said, and this has been one of them. I guess if I had been the mayor some people think I ought to have been, we would have been drilling and rehearsing our defenses for weeks. I had planned to do so soon. I thought we'd have more time. That's my only excuse. The sheriff and I have done a little preliminary planning and thinking. We've made an estimate of the weapons available. From what Jack Nelson and Dan Sims report on hunting licenses issued locally a year ago, there must be about 2,000 deer rifles in town. They also guess about four or five hundred twenty-twos. We're lucky to live in hunting country. Dan and Jack have about 200 guns of all kinds and sizes in their rental and selling stock, and they've nearly got all the ammunition in the valley. They had stocked up for the hunting season, which we never had this year, so their supply sounds as if it would be pretty good. You've got to remember the difference in requirements for bagging a deer and carrying on a war. We have very little ammunition when you consider it from that angle. The police, of course, have a few guns and some rounds. I'm placing Sheriff Johnson in full charge of defense. The police officers will act as his lieutenants. The mayor stepped to a wall chart that showed the detailed topography of Mayfield and its environs. This is your battle map right here, Sheriff. Come up and start marking off your sectors of the defense perimeter and name your officers to take charge of each. I hope somebody is going to say it's a good thing we've got the barbed wire defense line before this meeting is over. I want a rider to leave at once to bring back the wood detail. All their horses will be turned over to the police officers for use in their commands. I want 50 runners to go through town and notify one man in each block to mobilize his neighbors, with all weapons available, and lead them to the sectors which the sheriff will designate. Each man will bring all the ammunition he owns. Additional stores will be distributed by wagon to the sectors. Above everything else, each man must be warned to make each shot count. The room was silent, and there was no protest or disagreement. Mayor Hilliard, the man who had made fancy speeches, seemed to have vanished. Hilliard, the dynamic, down-to-earth leader, had taken his place. For a moment, no one in the room was more surprised than Hilliard himself. There's one thing I want to make absolutely clear, he said after a pause. You people who are working at the laboratory on College Hill are to keep away from the front lines, and away from all possible danger. That's an order, you understand? No said Professor Maddox abruptly. It's our duty as much as anyone else's to share in the defenses. 
it's your duty to keep your skins whole and get back into the laboratories as quickly as you can and get things running again. We haven't any special desire to save your necks in preference to our own, but in the long run, you're the only hope any of us has got. Remember that and stay out of trouble. The sheriff made his appointments in rapid-fire sequence, naming many who were not present, ordering messengers sent to them. Ken volunteered to ride after the wood detail. I guess it's safe enough to let you do that, the mayor said. Make it fast, but don't break your neck. I'll take it easy, Ken promised. Outside, he selected the best of the three police horses and headed up out of town, over the brittle snow with its glare ever reminding of the comet. When he was on higher ground, he glanced back over the length of the valley. The nomads were not in sight, not in force anyway. He thought he glimpsed a small movement a mile or two away from the barrier, at the south end of the valley before it turned out of sight at the point, but he wasn't sure. Once he thought he heard a rifle shot, but he wasn't sure of that either. As he appeared at the edge of the forest clearing, Mark Wilson, foreman of the detail, frowned irritably and paused in his task of snaking a log out of the road. You'll ruin that horse, besides breaking your neck riding like that in this snow. You're not on the detail anyway. Get all your men and horses up here right away, Ken said. Mayor's orders to get back to town at once. He told briefly the story of what had happened. Mark Wilson did not hesitate. He raised a whistle to his lips and signaled for the men to cease work and assemble. One by one they began to appear from among the trees. The horses were led along, their dragging harnesses clanking in the frozen air. We could cut for two more hours, they protested. No use wasting this daylight and having them to cut by lantern. Never mind, said Wilson. There's something else to do. Wait for the rest. When all had assembled, he jerked his head towards Ken. Go ahead, he said. You tell them. Ken repeated in detail everything that had happened. He outlined the mayor's plan of defense and passed on the order for them to take all mounts to City Hall, to go by their own homes on the way and pick up such weapons as they owned. You'll get your further orders down there, he finished. The group was silent, as if they could not believe it was actually happening. Mark Wilson broke the spell that seemed to be over them. Come on, he cried. Get the lead out of your shoes and let's get down there. Sunset's the deadline. There was a rush of motion then. They hitched up the necessary items and climbed aboard the half-filled sleds. There was no excitement or swearing against fate and their enemies. Rather, a solemn stillness seemed to fill each man as the sleds moved off down the hard, frozen roadway. Almost, but not quite the same pervading stillness was present in the town when Ken returned. There was a stirring of frantic activity like that of a disturbed anthill, but it was just as silent. The runners moved from block to block. In their wake, the alarmed block leaders raced, weapons in hand, from house to house, arousing their neighbors. Many who had already completed the block mobilization were moving in ragged formations to the sector ordered by the block runner according to Sheriff Johnson's plan. Ken did not know what was planned for the many weaponless men who were being assembled. They would be useless at the front line. There was need for some at the rear. He supposed Johnson would take care of that later when every weapon was manned at the defense barrier. He stopped at his own house. His mother greeted him anxiously. He could see she had been crying, but she had dried her tears now and was reconciled to the inevitable struggle that was at hand. Your father came in a few minutes ago and left again, she said. He's been placed in charge of distribution of medical supplies under Dr. Adams. He wants you and the other boys of the club to help in arranging locations for medical care. 
Meet him at Dr. Adams' office. Okay, Mom. How about packing a load of sandwiches? I may not be back for a long time. I don't know what arrangements they are making for feeding people on duty. Of course. I'll make them right away. She hurried to the kitchen. Maria said, There must be something I can do. They'll need nurses and aides. I want to go with you. I don't know what they've planned for that department either. They ought to have plenty of room for women in the food and nursing details. His mother came with the sandwiches and placed them in his hands. Be careful, Ken. Her voice shook. Do be careful. Sure, Mom. Maria got her coat. Mrs. Larson let her go without protest, but the two women watched anxiously as the young people rode toward town on the police horse. At the doctor's office, Ken found his father surrounded by an orderly whirl of activity. Ken, I was hoping you'd get back soon. You can help with arrangements for hospital care in assigned homes. The rest of your friends are out on their streets. Take this set of instructions Dr. Adams has prepared and see that arrangements are made in exact accordance with them at each house on the list. I can help too, said Maria. Yes, Dr. Adams has prepared a list of women and girls he wants to assign as nurses and aides. You can help contact them. Get the ones on this list to meet here as quickly as possible and they'll be assigned to the houses which the boys are lining up. The comet was setting earlier now so that its unnatural light disappeared almost as soon as the sun set below the horizon. In the short period of twilight, tension grew in the city. Everything possible had been done to mount defenses. An attack had been promised if the nomad emissaries did not return. Now the time had come. Darkness fell with no sign of activity in any direction. It seemed unreasonable that any kind of night attack would be launched, but Hilliard and Johnson warned their men not to relax their vigilance. The pace of preparatory activity continued. Blankets, clothing, and food were brought to the men who waited along the defense perimeter. Medical arrangements were perfected as much as possible. Ken and his father made their quarters in another room of the building where Dr. Adams' office was. There was no heat, of course, but they had brought sleeping bags which were unrolled on the floor. After the sandwiches were gone, their rations were canned soup, to be eaten directly from the can without being heated. Maria was quartered elsewhere in the building with some of the women who were directing the nurses' activities. Through the windows could be seen the campfires which Johnson had permitted to be built at the guard posts. Each had a wall of snow ready to be pushed upon it in case of any sign of attack. We'd better get some sleep, Professor Maddox said finally to Ken. They'll take care of anything that's going to happen out there tonight. We may have a rough day tomorrow. Ken agreed, although he did not feel like sleeping. After hours, it seemed, of thrashing restlessly, he dozed off. He thought it was dawn when he opened his eyes again to the faint red glow reflected on the walls of the room. He was unaware for the moment of where he was. Then he saw the glow was flickering. He scrambled to his feet and ran to the window. In the distance, the glow of burning houses lit the landscape. The rapid crack of rifle fire came faintly to his ears. Professor Maddox was beside him. How could they do it? he exclaimed. How could they get through our lines and set fire to the houses? On the southern sector of the defense line, Sheriff Johnson's men crouched behind their improvised defenses. The glow of the fire blinded them as they attempted to pierce the darkness from which the attack was coming. From a half-dozen different points, fireballs were being lobbed out of the darkness. Ineffective on the snow-laden roofs, 
many others crashed through the windows and rolled on the floors inside. Such targets became flaming infernos within minutes. They were all unoccupied because the inhabitants had been moved closer to the center of town for protection. A fusillade of shots poured out of the darkness upon the well-lighted defenders. They answered the fire, shooting at the pinpoints of light that betrayed the enemy's position, and at the spots in the darkness from which the flaming fireballs came. It was obvious that the attackers were continuously moving. It was difficult to know where the launching crews of the fireball catapults were actually located in that overwhelming darkness. Sheriff Johnson was on the scene almost at once. He had once been an infantry lieutenant with combat experience. His presence boosted the morale of the defenders immediately. Hold your fire, he ordered the men. Keep under cover and wait until you can see something worth shooting at. Try to keep the fire from spreading, and watch for a rush attack. Don't waste ammunition. You'll find yourselves without any if you keep that up. Reluctantly, they ceased firing and fell back to the protection of their barricades. Patrolman John Sykes, who was lieutenant of the sector, had been in the National Guard, but he had never seen anything like this. Do you think they'll rush us, he asked? Tonight, I mean, in the dark. Who knows? They may be crazy enough to try anything. Keep your eyes open. The flames quickly burned out the interiors of the houses that had been hit. As the roofs crashed in, their burden of snow assisted in putting out the fires, and there was no spreading to nearby houses. In his room, Ken dressed impatiently. It was useless to try to sleep any more. I wish they'd let us go out there, he said. We've got as much right as Johnson or any of the rest. His father remained a motionless silhouette against the distant firelight. As much right, perhaps, he said, but more indifferent responsibilities. Hilliard is right. If we were knocked down out there, who would take over the work in the laboratory? Johnson? Adams? In Berkeley there are thousands fighting each other, but with French and his group gone, no one is fighting the comet. I don't think it is selfish to say we are of infinitely more value in the laboratory than we could ever be out there with guns in our hands. He turned and smiled in the half-darkness. That's in spite of the fact that you have the merit badge for marksmanship and won the hunting club trophy last year. After an hour, the attack ceased, apparently because the defenders refused to waste their fire on the impossible targets. Sheriff Johnson sent word around for his men to resume rotation of watch and get all the sleep possible before the day that was ahead of them. The fires burned themselves out shortly before dawn. Their light was followed soon by the glow of the comet rising in the southeast. Ken watched it and thought of Granny Wicks. It wouldn't be hard, he thought, to understand how a belief in omens could arise. It wouldn't be hard at all. The sky had cleared so that the light of the comet bathed the entire countryside in its full, bitter glory. At sunrise, the faint trickles of smoke rose from hundreds of wood fires, started with the difficult green fuel, and stringent breakfasts were prepared. A thought went through Ken's mind as he wondered if anybody was taking note of the supply of matches in the town. When they ran low, coals of one fire would have to be kept to light another. It was nine o'clock on the day when ordinarily school bells would have been sounding throughout the valley. The first war shouts of the attacking nomads were heard on the plain to the south. About thirty men on horseback raced single file along the highway that bore the hard, frozen tracks of horses and sleds that had moved to and from the farms down there. Patrolman Sykes watched them through his glasses. His command rang out to his company. 
Hold fire. He knew the nomads would not hope to break through the barbed wire on such a rush. It looked as if they planned an Indian-style attack as the line began breaking in a slow curve, something less than 100 yards away. Fire! Sykes commanded. Volleys of shots rang out on both sides almost simultaneously. The lead rider of the nomads went down, his horse galloping in riderless panic at the head of the line. The hard-riding column paralleled the barrier for 200 yards, drawing the fire of adjacent guard posts before they broke and turned south again. It was, evidently, a test of the strength of the defenses. Every shot counts, Sykes cried out to his men. As the attackers rode out of effective range, he sighted four riderless horses. Beside him, in the barricade, one of his men was hit and bleeding badly. A tourniquet was prepared until two men of the medical detail arrived with an improvised stretcher. Sykes sat down and rested his head on his arms for a moment. The air was well below freezing, but his face was bathed with sweat. How long? he asked himself silently. How long can it go on? First the comet, then this? He roused at a sudden cry beside him. They're coming back, a man shouted. Sykes stood up and raised his field glasses to his eyes. From around the point, a fresh group of riders was pouring toward the town, at least three times as many as before. In a flash, he understood their intent. They're going to come through, he cried. They're going to come right through the barrier, no matter what it costs them. End of chapter 14